0: You're listening
1: to New Voices in Philosophy, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscomb. And I'm Haley Brennan. Hello, my
0: name is Katherine Sophia Bell. I am the founding director of Collegium of Black Women Philosophers. I'm also associate professor of philosophy at Penn State University.
1: So today I wanna to talk to you about your work on black women and women of color who engage with Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Uh, so to get started, I wanna ask, how did you get interested in doing this work?
0: So that project came out of, let's see, it's not something that I was interested in as a graduate student. So I would say, like, as a college student, I didn't read the Second Sex as a college student. I went to Spelman College, which is, a, which is a historically Black women's college in Atlanta, Georgia. I started out as a biology pre-med and pre-law major. And then I found that I would be, like, dragging myself to the biology classes, but I would be, like, skipping along to my humanities classes. And so I went, and Spelman's a um, small liberal arts college, historically Black college for women. And so I went to each of the departments and said, you know, I want to do a JDMD when I finish. How can your major best prepare me for medical school and law school? Of course, the philosophy department had the strongest argument for how philosophy could help me with both medical school and law school. And I ended up changing my major to philosophy. Um, I was still thinking about law school by the time I got to my senior year, but I dropped medical school altogether. And then I found out my senior year, this was in the 90s, that there were only 16 Black women in the country with a PhD in philosophy. So I felt a moral and personal obligation to increase our representation in the discipline. So I went to graduate school in philosophy. So as a so going back to my college student experience, I'd not read the second sex in college, but I did read um, Elizabeth Spellman's In Essential Woman. And I found her critiques of the second sex sufficient for me not to be necessarily interested in reading the second sex. By the time I went to graduate school, I hadn't taken any seminars that um, taught or took up the second sex. Most of, what, uh, most of Beauvoir's work that I was reading at that time had more to do with debates that were happening between like Sartre and Merleau ponty and mm-hmm. her kind of interaction with those debates. I was also interested in some of her memoirs. And so far as I was working on people like Franz Fanon and Richard Wright, and in the memoirs, she kind of talks about those figures. So still, even in graduate school, I had not read The Second Sex. And then finally, I decided to go ahead and read the text. Um, I've taught a seminar on the text um, as a philosophy professor. And I found that I wanted to talk a little bit about how she deploys this race-gender analogy in the text. Mm-hmm. So the first time that I published on this subject matter is in an edited collection um, that I co-edited with Donna Del Marcano and Maria del Guadalupe Davidson called Convergences, Black Feminism and Continental Philosophy. And I contributed a chapter in that edited collection on the race-gender analogy in Beauvoir the Second Sex in Sartre's Respectful prostitute. So that was published back in 2010. Even at that time, I didn't expect to do a whole book on this project, mm-hmm. but the issue kept coming up. And eventually I had graduate students who were working on it and other things. And so I decided to go ahead and do a full book project on it. But the, the, the starting point was that chapter in the Convergences um, anthology.
1: What are some of the names and the projects of the figures that you're working on?
0: Absolutely. So, in that initial chapter, again, I was looking at Sartre Beaufort, and then I was also looking at Anna Julia Cooper as one mm-hmm. example of someone who later I would publish a piece talking about proto intersectionality. So, Cooper, as early as 1892 was already talking about how the Black woman is presented with both the race question and the woman problem, but is an unknown or unacknowledged factor in both, right? So she's already getting at what we later would call intersectionality. Um, I've gone as far back as Maria Stewart to talk about um, how she, as early as 1831, was offering a kind of proto-intersectional approach to race, gender, as well as class, Um, So those are some of the figures I was thinking about initially. Mm -hmm. Now that this has developed into a full book project, I've expanded that quite a bit. So in the book, the first chapter actually looks at Black women and how they have been taking up, again, what we might call a triple oppression thesis or proto-intersectionality, going all the way back to um, Phyllis Wheatley, actually, in like the late 1700s all the way up to the coining of the phrase intersectionality by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. So that's the first chapter. The second chapter focuses on Claudia Jones. Okay. So in 1949, Claudia Jones wrote an End to the Neglect of the Problems of Negro Women. That's published the same year as The Second Sex, And one of the arguments that I make there is Claudia Jones is more attentive to what at that time was called the triple oppression thesis of Black women as Black, as women and as workers. Simone de Beauvoir is in The Second Sex in 1949. So the first chapter focuses on Claudia Jones. The second chapter focuses on Lorraine Hansberry, who wrote a review of The Second Sex in about 1957. That review was not initially published in the 1950s, but it did get published in Beverly guy Chef Words of Fire, which was published in 1995. Mm -hmm. And even though that review by Hansberry has been available for over 20 years now, it's still not cited very frequently or engaged very frequently in the secondary literature on Beauvoir and the Second Sex. Mm -hmm. The third chapter focuses on Audre Lorde, and Audre Lorde wrote her famous speech, which became published as an essay in Sister Outsider mm-hmm. The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Well, that speech was initially presented at a 30th anniversary conference on the publication of The Second Sex. And so I talk about that connection with that particular conference context in which um, Audrey Lorde presented that speech. Um, Some of the other figures that I engage in the book include Bell Hooks, um, Angela Davis, Oye Ronke Oye Wumi, um, Deborah King, Paula Giddings. Um, there are a number of different figures that I'm looking at. And then and pe- people who have explicitly kind of taken up Beauvoir's as second sex, but have been neglected in the secondary literature up to this point. Some others are Mariana Ortega, Stephanie Brutes. Yeah, those are some off the top of my head.
1: So it sounds like you're looking at both themes that Black women philosophers pick up on that are either in Beauvoir or kind of like noticeably absent from her writing, uh, as well as writings that are, directly engaging with her texts, like the like Hainsbury's essay. Um, so I was wondering if you could say more about the way the project integrates exegesis or direct criticism of Beauvoir with the sort of historical philosophical background of, for instance, concepts like intersectionality and the intersection of race and gender.
0: Right. So when we look at Jones, for example, again, in that 1949 essay and into the neglect of the problems of Negro women, Mm -hmm. it's only 19 pages, like it's a densely, um, she, she packs in a lot to those 19 pages, but in those 19 pages, she constantly reiterates, you know, as a black woman, as, as a, as a Negro, as a woman, as a worker. These are the things that I'm dealing with. These are the things that black women, uh, black working class women are dealing with. And Mm -hmm. it's an appeal in part to the Communist Party to stop neglecting those problems that black working class women are dealing with. Um, It's also actually in some ways reminiscent of, although anticipating because this comes before Anita Allen. But Anita Allen has that famous quote in the um, interview that she does with George Yancey. Where she talks about, you know, it's not the job of Black women to prove why they're worthy of philosophy. It's the job of philosophy to prove why it's worthy of Black women. Mm-hmm. Because any Black woman who can get a PhD in philosophy could just as easily get a law degree or any other law degree and go someplace where she's gonna be more welcome, right? Mm-hmm. And so Claudia Jones makes a similar ar- argument with regard to the Communist Party. She's like, you know, it's not that Black women need the Communist Party. Black women are already organizing, they're already making an impact in their communities nationally and internationally. So the Communist Party really needs to demonstrate why it's worthy of Black women coming in to kind of help right the wrongs that are happening um, in the U.S. context and internationally. She's a very internationalist, transnationalist, um, Black left leftist feminist, right? So she's looking at the U.S. context as well as um, a more global con- context, looking at things like imperialism, colonialism um, globally, and then in the U.S. context, again, looking at capitalism, racism, sexism, and things like that. And so she puts at the center of her analysis, the experiences and oppressions and contributions of black working class women, where like you can contrast that with Beauvoir's The Second Sex, where black Mm -hmm. women are almost invisible in that text, right? They don't Mm -hmm. really show up. So there's a way in which Beauvoir is constantly taking this analogical approach where she compares racial oppression with gender oppression, where racial oppression often gets translated as black men gender oppression often gets translated as white women and black women and other women of color are neglected in that kind of analysis, right? The same thing shows up in the second sex with the slave uh, woman analogy where the experiences and oppressions of white women are compared to slavery without any regard for black women who actually experienced chattel slavery.
1: So so I wanted to pick up on that Allen quote uh, about philosophy having to prove that it is worthy of black women. Um, and uses an opportunity to ask you what you think the value is in naming these black women thinkers as philosophers. So they are very clearly like writing about philosophical topics, like intersectionality and, and oppression, um and even right, working on what we recognize as, as clearly philosophical texts, like the second sex. But Haynesburywright is more often called a playwright, and Jones, you know really referred to as a journalist. Um so especially in the context of the project for which I'm interviewing you, this new narratives project, which you know part of the ethos of the project is going back and identifying historical thinkers as philosophers, I want to ask: you, What are your thoughts on the importance of giving these thinkers the label philosopher?
0: Right. So I do call um, all of these figures philosophers. It's interesting because even if we start with Simone de Beauvoir or even someone else that I've written a book on, Hannah Arendt, mm-hmm. these are two people who were trained as philosophers who rejected the label and title of philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. Or philosopher. So Arendt tended to refer to herself as a political thinker rather than a philosopher. Beauvoir tended to ref- um, refer to herself as a writer more so than a philosopher, even though they're formally trained in the discipline of philosophy, right? Um, but I'm someone who is very expansive in Mm -hmm. how I conceptualize what philosophy is and who counts as a philosopher, right? So I often will give the example of how in a typical philosophy class, history of philosophy class, people that's focused on the Western philosophical tradition, people will start with the pre-Socratics with Thales and water, right? And these, mm-hmm. these fragments, right? And so I'm like, if Thales and water counts as <laughs> philosophy, then anything goes. Like you can't tell me Claudia Jones yeah. or Audrey Lord or Bell Hooks are not philosophers, right? And then even someone like Bell Hooks, I mean, the title of my book is Beauvoir and Bell, B-E-L-L-E, which is my last name. Uh That title is derived from an essay published by Bell Hooks in 2012 called Beauvoir and Bell, B-E-L-L, for Bell Hooks, True Philosophers. And in that essay, Bell Hooks self-identifies as a true philosopher alongside Simone de Beauvoir. And she Mm. talks about how Beauvoir inspired her as a philosopher and as a thinker and as a writer but how she still was critical of Beauvoir for always thinking about um, gender without really being attuned to how gender is um, always already informed by race as well as sex, as well as other kinds of um,
1: things. So still on this thread a little bit, um, I'd like to ask about the practicalities of getting going on such an expansive project. So I think part of the problem, at least I see with, with these women, not historically being labeled as philosophers is that, it can make them and their writings difficult to locate and then, you know, include in research. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would love to hear first, you know, how you came to, to find these figures and writings. And then second, um, what advice you have for someone who wants to take on a project like this one?
0: Yeah, this is an interesting question. So again, when I wrote that initial chapter in Convergences, Black Feminism and Continental Philosophy back in 2010, I wasn't envisioning doing a whole book project. It was like this was something that had kind of been problematic for me and how it showed up, Um, again, this race gender analogy and how it continually showed up. And so I wanted to write something about that. And then I had at least two graduate students who were working on Beauvoir and the Second Sex in some way. And then I decided to write um, on Richard Wright later in his relationship to Beauvoir and to, um, to Sartre. And so like Beauvoir kind of kept coming up that way. And then there were people like Margaret um, Peg Simons and Nancy Tawana and others who were just like, okay, there's some, there's something here. Like people haven't really engaged this question in yeah. as nuanced a way as you're engaging it. So, you know, just see where it goes, right? And so, those kind of promptings between my graduate students and other um, f- philosophers caused me to dig deeper a little bit. And then, again, once I taught the second, so I, I think I'm probably one of the few people who've actually taught the second sex in its entirety. I think, I mean, it's a huge <laughs> yeah. text, right? And so, a lot of times people will teach excerpts of it, but I taught mm-hmm. the second sex in its entirety in like a 400 level class, which at Penn State is like upper level undergraduates and graduate students. And there was something I think about like going through and in a deeper way, the entire text that I was able to track themes that I was taking up in that 2010 Mm -hmm. essay and other essays and just see like just how pernicious some of those and problematic some of those themes were, um, as well as again, the absences that were present in the text. And then also the erasure, so so the erasure or the Mm -hmm. marginalization or not paying attention to black women and women of color in the text itself coupled with the kind of replication of those erasures and marginalizations in the secondary literature, you know, at that point, it shifted from just the critique of the text, which is certainly there in my book, Mm to what does it look like to really recover the Black women and other women of color who have productively engaged this text, whether it was more um, positively, like someone like Lorraine Hansberry, Mm -hmm. or more critically, like a lot of the other figures, right? And so from there, I knew I wanted to do a chapter on Lorraine Hansberry, because so little has been written on her review of this text, even though she gives a very in depth review of this text that has, again, been available for over two decades, but has largely been ignored, even if it gets cited, it's not actually engaged with any kind of um, depth. Um, I knew I wanted to do the Claudia Jones chapter um, when I was teaching an Africana graduate seminar and we were teach. I was teaching Claudia Jones's essay. And, and I, I just, for some reason, the dates stood out to me and I was like, oh, this was published the same year The Second Sex was published, right? And so what does it look like to look at how mm-hmm. Jones is engaging certain issues in the very same year that Beauvoir is engaging certain issues and how do they engage those issues from very different vantage points Um, so I knew I wanted to do a Claudia Jones essay and as I dug deeper into that I found out that she actually is one of the earlier people to recover Simone de Beauvoir so in the U.S. context so there was a very negative review of the second sex that was supposed to come out in a communist journal uh, Claudia Jones blocked the publication of that negative review and also helped to make sure a more positive review um, would be published of the second sex, right? And so that's mm-hmm. a history that a lot of people don't know or haven't paid attention to. So mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that that was included in the book. And then also with Audrey Lorde, again, Margaret um, Simons, who who got, goes by Peg, was actually at that conference in 1979. So she sent me like her copy of the program from that conference, wow. which also just gave me some more context for like what was happening when Audrey Lorde gives this master's tools would never dismantle the master's house speech in that context, right? Yeah. Um, so those, again, are like the first three chapters. The fourth chapter deals with the race-gender analogy. The fifth chapter deals with the woman as slave analogy. And then the sixth chapter deals with Beauvoir's uptake of abolition and suffrage in the U.S., right? So Beauvoir gives this account of abolition and suffrage to say, okay, well, in the U.S. context, you had white women who became active on the political scene through abolition. And then when it came to the issue of suffrage, Black men turned their back on white women on the issue of voting and suffrage after they'd like helped Black people get free from slavery. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. that's not what happened, right? Like, (laughs) this is a really problematic account. And it's only a few paragraphs in the second sex. Problematic, but also common narrative around what happened with abolition and suffrage and white women, right? So I decided to commit a whole chapter to that narrative and problematizing that narrative. And this goes back to my education at Spelman College, right? Like, I'd already read Beverly Guy-Shephtal's words of fire as a college student. So I'd read um, Hansberry's Mm -hmm. review as a college student. I'd also read text by Angela Davis, where she talks about, like in Women, Race, and Class, she talks about Black women abolitionists and Black women suffragists, right? So again, this erasure of Black women who themselves were also abolitionists and suffragists, um, as, well as well as the erasure of somebody like Frederick Douglass, who was an abolitionist and suffragist who does not kind of fall into this description of, like, Black men turned their back on white women when it came to the issue of voting, right? And so what Angela Davis shows us is actually the opposite is true. White women actually deployed strategically racist paradigms, particularly in the South, in an effort to get white men to buy into white women's suffrage against a kind of Black or... um, Immigrant vote um, in mm-hmm. the context of the U.S. Um, so it's, it was because I had already been exposed to a different kind of counter narrative mm-hmm. that when I encountered that narrative in the second sex, I had access to a counter narrative that I could then revisit for the purpose of this text.
1: So it sounds like your your education was instrumental in getting you interested in these figures. I guess maybe contrary to what I was suggesting, like they they were presented to you as philosophical from the get go. Right. I do patient. I mean, I do think. Right.
0: Like it's I don't take for granted that I attended a historically black women's college that was a small liberal arts college where I majored in philosophy, where race, class, gender, sexual orientation were always already at the center of any kind of conversation we were having about philosophy. Right. So it's not like in graduate school at predominantly white institutions or even in college for philosophy majors at most predominantly white institutions where there's this assumption that race, class, and gender somehow do not play a role in what's happening with philosophy, or as if philosophers themselves have not contributed to constructions of race, class, and gender, right? Yeah. So I think it is important to look at, you know, how are we setting up um, our curriculum? Like what kind of texts mm-hmm. are we reading in the context of a philosophy major? And how can we expose students to things that are not limited to the Western philosophical canon? in order to give a richer, more diverse um, education that is not like so narrow and myopic.
1: Could you give me some examples of how you do this in your own classroom?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So if I teach the history of philosophy, for example, I never start with the Greeks because you have like Chinese philosophy and Egyptian philosophy that's around before Greek philosophy is right. And then you also have these arguments about um, for example, in Stolen Legacy or Black Athena about how the Greeks adopted or appropriated or stole, depending on how you want to frame it, certain philosophical frameworks from Egypt, right? And so I always teach um, the Western, if, if I'm teaching the Western philosophical canon, it's always in conversation with other traditions and other canons that coexisted or pre-existed um, ahead of the Western philosophical canon.
1: To go back a little bit to the, your book project, which actually, I mean, I should—I would love to give you an opportunity to talk about your book directly. This, you just finished it, right? Or you just finished the edits so I'm not—I have never. I've, I've been <laughs> in revision. It's due. So oh. the revise—the
0: whole revise thing is due on March 1st. So I'm literally like in the last finishing touches to submit it to give it back to the press by um, next Tuesday. Thank you.
1: And what's the title of the book?
0: The working title, we've been the the part the first part of the title has been consistent throughout. It's the subtitle that keeps changing. But right now, <laughs> the most recent version of it is Beauvoir and Bell, a Black Feminist Critique of, of the Second Sex. And so I settled on that initially. I had like it was there were other versions that were a little bit more clunky, like black women and women of color engagements yeah. with the second sex, you know, and it was kind of too long. And so I decided to go with a black feminist critique because I am a black feminist who's critiquing yeah. this text even though, again, the um, readers of the text are not only Black feminists, I'm also looking at, like, Latina feminists Mm -hmm. and and, um, other women of color who've engaged the text that have overlooked or not engaged um, in the kind of white feminist literature on the second sex.
1: I'm curious about the framing of the book as a critique of the second sex specifically. Mm -hmm. And so we've spoken, right, about the kind of really substantial accounts being offered by the thinkers you engage with in the book, Hainsbury, Jones, Cooper, Lord, Bell Hooks. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see the project you are undertaking, and then you know as a different question, the project that the philosophers I just named are undertaking, as a critique of the second sex with an eye to improve it, to read their criticisms back into the way Beauvoir frames problems for women, such that you know we can improve this this kind of original framework, or do you take them and then and then yourself as adding a distinct framework, um, one that should either replace or at least be considered alongside Beauvoir's?
0: So I will say for me, I am not trying to um, improve or rescue or save the second sex in any way. But at the same time, I'm not saying, let's stop reading the second sex, right? And so um, in a similar approach as I took to my first book, and I ran the Negro question, it's just like, okay, here's a major figure who's had a lot of influence on how we think about politics, how we think about the public, the private, and the social, right? So what does it mean to take seriously the problematic ways in which somebody like Hannah Arendt engages questions of anti-Black racism, questions of segregation, questions of colonialism and imperialism, right? And so my argument is, in general, you know, it's not that we need to throw away these texts because of their Mm -hmm. problematics, but we need to stop pretending that those problematics don't exist, right? We get a richer account and engagement with these figures and with these texts when we take seriously the problematics that are part of the text. So I take a similar approach to the second sex, right? It's not that we should stop reading it. It has had a lot of influence, but what does it mean to take seriously these problematics that exist in the text instead of pretending that those problematics don't exist or um, being an apologetic for the problematics or being hyper defensive to try to kind of keep her intact? You know, what does it mean to kind of acknowledge what the shortcomings of Beauvoir and her text are? without saying we need to stop reading the text altogether or we need to salvage or save the text, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So my approach has been, you know, on the one hand, I do want to take seriously the critiques and the problematics of the text. On the other hand, and even more than that, I'm invested in recovering these Black women and other women of color scholars who have productively engaged that text, again, whether more critically or more favorably.
1: So of all of these texts and authors we've talked about, uh, if you had to pick one text that you could make mandatory reading for all students at your institution, what would it be?
0: So that would be difficult to name. I think, of, you know, so I could choose one piece by each author.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, it's a hard so question. Like, right
0: yeah, so definitely Claudia Jones and Into the Neglect of the Problems of Negro Women. That's probably yeah. her best known essay. She has a lot of great essays, but there's just so, like, it's there's it's so rich both in terms of, again, this framing of triple oppression, but also she gives examples of, yeah. like, you know, case studies, but real right. life case studies of women, you know, people who have been lynched, women who have been yeah. um you know, arrested, whose husbands have been killed, like she gives real life examples of what what's going on. And so for a lot of these figures, like they're scholars, but they're also activists, right? So this is not yeah. a theoretical exercise for them. They're really like looking at, okay, what kind of frameworks can we offer to bring to bear on what's happening day to day on the ground, right? And so that's something yeah. else that I think is important to know about these figures. But I mean, I think yeah. if we went outside of this particular book project, because there are so many different yeah. um, figures that I'm engaging in this book project, one of the one of the writers that has really struck me, like if I could get everybody to read this particular writer, yeah, is actually Octavia Butler who is a novelist, and Afrofuturist. Yeah. And so I think any of her work would be helpful. But in particular, her parable series, I find is very pertinent for like what we're living right now. So yeah. actually, when, when the pandemic hit in spring of 2020, I was teaching a Simone de Beauvoir seminar and we stopped reading Beauvoir. I was like, Beauvoir is not going to save you here. Right. Octavia Butler, like this is the blueprint for how we You know, survive this and whatever else is coming. Yeah. So Octavia Butler, I appreciate because she takes like she weaves in this kind of historical analysis and builds on like historical experiences, but doesn't get trapped in history. Right. Like she's constantly looking toward the future. And how can you pull from yeah. History and lessons from history in terms of oppression and how oppression has resisted and apply that in nuanced ways with what's happening in the present and projecting out toward building a future. Right. So yeah. there is just there are just so many resources available in Octavia Butler's work um, that she tends to be my go to person. If it's like if you can only read one person right now, <laughs> yeah, maybe Octavia Butler would be the person.
1: Yeah, I, I got so excited while you were saying this because it, it's such a wonderful experience, you know, and feeling to read philosophy that that resonates with your life and you know with what is actually happening in the world. Um, you know, that was definitely my impression mm-hmm. of the the Jones essay, which I was reading for the first time in preparation for our interview. You know, she appeals like not to metaphors or analogies, but to really concrete examples. Yeah. Could you share a bit about how your students have reacted to and experienced these figures? that we've been talking about?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, it is important to um, be able to connect what we're reading and what we're learning to how we're living. Um, You know, that is just, for me, part of the point. Um, so I'm constantly wanting to have discussion oriented classes where students can bring their whole selves to the classroom and how they relate or don't relate to um, particular texts and things that, like that that we're reading. I mean, I can remember teaching a black feminism and intersectionality course where we went through a lot of words of fire and this bridge caught my back and some other texts and so the students were able to see like okay even though we don't get the term intersectionality from Kimberly Crenshaw until 1989 again this concept can be traced all the way back to 1831 if not before that and so when they're able to actually read all of these texts and context they see like oh these themes have been coming up in various ways over time, and these are the ways I see them connecting to experiencing or not connecting to what I'm experiencing and so yeah, I think it is important to be able to see oneself in in different kinds of texts or see what resources are available in text for how we live our um, how we live our lives with intention
1: yeah, absolutely um, so moving away from the the content of your work to talk about your experience in philosophy, if you don't mind mm-hmm. Um, You mentioned earlier in our conversation that you felt a moral obligation to pursue a PhD in philosophy when you found out there was, what, 16 Black women? Yeah, there were only
0: 16 in the 90s. It's probably closer to 50 now, but um, back in the late 90s, there were only 16 Black women in the country with a PhD in philosophy.
1: And I know that you have gone on to, to found the collegium of Black women philosophers. So it seems that mentorship and especially representation are important to both your professional life and the work you do. So I was hoping you could speak to these spaces you've created and, you know, how that is connected with your work.
0: Absolutely. I mean, so again, for me being a college student at Spelman College, there was just a built in kind of um, mentorship and, you know, focus on students and developing students and, um, you know, helping everyone be their best and do their best. So that was just part of my college experience. Um, By the time I went to graduate Mm -hmm. school, again, going from Historically black, small liberal arts women's college to a predominantly white institution, I decided there to start the IW Wells Philosophical Forum, which also focused on Black students and philosophy um, as a kind of support system for the graduate students who were there and potentially to recruit, you know, more graduate students into the discipline. So that was something that I did as a graduate student. And in many ways, it was duplicating support systems that I already had, and when I went into spaces where those support systems didn't exist, then I created those support systems. So I did that in graduate school. Once I finished my PhD, and this was at the University of Memphis, I was able to finish in four years. So I stayed on that fifth year that I would have had a fifth year funding. I was offered a postdoctoral fellowship. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that context, I was helping to revamp the curriculum for African and African-American studies at Memphis so i did a so i did the ma and M- 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 phd in memphis stayed there for one year postdoc, then i went to emory university where i had a postdoc in the um what then was called the center for humanistic inquiry i think it's called like the fox humanities center now um and from emory then i went into my first tenure track job at vanderbilt university And my first tenure track job was actually in African and African-American and diaspora studies, not in the philosophy department. So I had a courtesy appointment in philosophy, but my primary tenure home was in African-American and diaspora studies. And it was at Vanderbilt University as a very early tenure track professor that I founded the Collegium of Black Women Philosophers. And part of that was Mm -hmm. me thinking like, oh, there should be an organization for Black Women in Philosophy, um, and then Charles Mills actually came and gave a talk. I tell this story all the time, but Charles Mills came and gave a talk at Vanderbilt. And so he said, hey, Catherine, you know, what's going on with the Black Women in Philosophy? And I was like, I don't know. Like, somebody should definitely start an organization because I would definitely join the organization. Yeah. It's like, Catherine, you're at Vanderbilt. They have money. You should spend their money. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> so so I started, you know, I got very generous funding from Vanderbilt and I started the organization yeah. there in 2007. And then I was recruited to Penn State um, in 2008. And so Penn State has, you know, financially supported and sponsored the organization since I've been at Penn State.
1: Yeah, I, I, hope, I hope you hear this from lots of people. Um, but it, it's really incredible what you've done and the work you, you do to kind of like make these spaces, you know, just like recognizing that it doesn't exist and then you are going to make it happen.
0: Well, and I also say when I first conceptualized it, I was actually thinking more of um, graduate students and then faculty across ranks, right? Like, so assistant, associate, and professor rank. Um, But then once I started it and launched the website, you know, students are savvy, right? So I would have undergraduate students Googling like black women in philosophy. They would come across the organization and they would send me emails and say like, oh, you know, I'm the only black woman philosophy major at my institution. You know, I feel isolated. I feel alienated. But seeing this website, you know, has encouraged me, you know, can I come to the conference? So initially I was not necessarily thinking about undergraduate students when I conceptualized it, but I expanded it to include yeah. undergraduate students because they reached out, you know, because they found it on Google. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I was intentional once I started hearing from undergraduates to incorporate um, something for undergraduate students um, who were philosophy majors who would be interested in pursuing graduate studies on philosophy and then like supporting them through the pipeline, right? From undergraduate studies to graduate yeah. studies to the tenure track, or even outside of the academy because some people have opted to, you know, get their PhD in philosophy and, and do something outside of the academy. So I always try to make sure that there's some kind of professional yeah. development around being in the academy, but also options outside of the academy.
1: So at this point, I kind of feel like you've given an answer, many answers to my next question. But you know, maybe to put it together, what do you think is lost when we don't teach and research these figures? Or alternatively, with a positive spin, what do you think is gained by doing so?
0: Well, I mean, to be honest, I think the most interesting work being done in philosophy right now is being done by people who are not limited to this myopic, narrow vision of who a philosopher is or what philosophy is, yeah. right? And so I think there are only so many ways that you can come at the question of like, how do you know you're not a brain and a vet, or like any of these other kind of tired <laughs> tropes, right? So I think the more interesting yeah. dynamic work is being done by the people who historically have been excluded from the discipline of philosophy or thought of as outside of the discipline of philosophy. Um, So I think there's just such a there's a whole world of resources and opportunities and different ways of thinking when you come at philosophical questions um, through various um, lenses or actually thinking through different types of philosophical questions that are going to be framed by people who are, again, not limited to a very narrow, myopic um, view of uh, who or what is philosophy.
1: Okay, Uh, so before we end, I'd love to just hear about your future projects now that the book is wrapping up. Like at this
0: point, so my first, again, my first kind of single author manuscript was on Hannah Arendt and the Negro Question. And then I did this anthology on Convergence as Black Feminism and Continental Philosophy. And now I have this project coming out on Simone de Beauvoir. um, Yeah. And Black women and women of color engagements with the second sex. And I've decided that, you know, I mean, while I think these have been important, critical projects, I really want to put my energy into something different. So like at this point, I'm like, I really do want to focus on Black women and women of color and what they've done and what they said and how they did it um, as opposed to like these kind of, I mean, again, I think these critical projects and critiques are important, but, you know, I don't want to spend the rest of my philosophical life engaging in in that kind of work. Um, So moving forward, I'm looking at um, one project on Black feminism and Buddhism and memoirs, looking at Black women, and this Bell Hooks is involved in this, is included in this as well. But Black women who have practiced Buddhism and written about Buddhism or written autobiographies and memoirs about this. So I have um, like Bell Hooks is one of the figures there. Angel Kyoto Williams, Faith Adielli, Jan Wills uh, is involved in in that project. So that's one kind of next project Uh that I have. And another one I'm thinking about is Black women writing wellness. And so I'm thinking about major figures like, again, Audre Lorde, um, June Uh Jordan, Alice Walker, Tony Cade at Bambara, and how they have really written through again, whether autobiographically or poetically or in essays or in novels, conceptions of wellness, reflections on motherhood, reflections on um, motherlessness, yeah. reflections on systems of oppression, modes of resistance, but also being outside of just that oppression resistance paradigm. Um, so that's the kind, mm-hmm. th- that's definitely the direction I'm going into and really like just pouring my energy more exclusively into um, that kind of work.
1: I really look forward to seeing that work uh, and to reading your book when it comes out. Thank you so, so much for talking to me today, Catherine. Uh, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to New Voices. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy Project. The music you hear is 17th century female composer Elizabeth-Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Pizzeria Armanici. For more information about the project, and for future episodes, please visit our website newnarrativesinphilosophy.net New Voices is a continuation of the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. You can also find past episodes under that name in all the same places. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.